who do men say that I am? And uh, they begin to discuss with him. Says some say you're the Christ, Elijah, so on and so forth. He said, but who do you say? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus' response to that was, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I begin that by saying that you need a revelation from God concerning the oneness of God or His nature. You can spend a lot of time studying theology, okay? And probably if you did, you would come to the right conclusion if you're honest. But you still need a revelation of it from the Lord. And once you get that revelation that Jesus is God in flesh, you will have no problem any further with the doctrines that come to you uh, that are not accurate. Amen. But you need a revelation. I can stand up here and I can teach you things, but you still need to ask God, God, give me a revelation by your Spirit. Because a lot of things I will say or teach you uh, doesn't mean that you're really getting it anyway. You know, So you need a revelation from it, from God, to hear it and to understand it. And I need God's Spirit and His revelation to teach it. So, amen. Pray for God's revelation concerning His oneness. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. And what we are seeking to do is give you answers to Trinitarian theology. Okay, so I will be covering some of the things that they believe and then trying my best to answer them. Okay. Hebrews chapter 1, let's start with verse 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, or the ages, who be in the brightness of His glory, and the expressed image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Father, we come before You right now. We ask Your blessing to be upon the reading of Your Holy Word. We pray, God, it should quicken by Your Spirit Your Word to us tonight. Give us revelation. Give us understanding, God, concerning it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the name of the Lord. Alright, verse 3. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us that He is the brightness of His glory. The glory of God. And the expressed image of His person. The word person there. The Greek word you may or may not be familiar with, okay? But it's H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S, hypostasis or hypostasis. Now, a lot of times when we're dealing with God, they want to make God, and I say they, Trinitarians want to make God a person. But we have to remember the nature of God. So let me go over here 
And I will cover the nature of God first of all as to what is God or who is God, all right? So give me just a moment here. I'm kind of feeling after what the Lord wants me to do. Amen. Okay, the nature of God. Now, when we talk about hypostasis or hypostasis, however you want to pronounce that word, that is translated in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, person. That is not a good translation. Okay? Because God in the Word, God is never called a person. Before He became, before He came in the form of a man. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? So, first of all, then, if you're going to make God into three separate persons, then you have to prove that God was called a person. And He never was. In the Word of God, He never was. Uh, In the book of Job, it talks about if you respect persons, that doesn't have an idea where there's three separate persons in the Godhead. It means that there's favoritism. If you respect persons, that's just teaching favoritism, okay? So two references, the one in the book of Job and one here where it seems to call God a person, uh, very easily explained. The word here in verse 3, the expressed image of his person, is from that Greek word, hypostasis. It should be translated substance. All right, now, so this passage here is talking about Jesus Christ. And it says that Jesus Christ is the expressed image. He is the same. He is identical, okay, as God. He's not different from God. The expressed image, He is exactly the same. Do you understand that? For example, if I had a coin tonight, and I showed you, let's say, on the front of the coin, heads or tails, whatever, the face of a president, where there is a tool that stamped that image on that coin, okay, the image that the tool stamped on the coin, the image that's on the tool, the image that's on the coin, is the expressed image. That, that means it's identical. It's the same. It's not different. There's not a different image. Right? So Jesus Christ is the expressed image of God. That means when you see God, when you see Jesus Christ, you see identically the same God. They're not separate. They're, they're not different. The expressed image of God. Jesus Christ is God exactly in every detail. Okay? Now, the word, uh, the expressed image of His substance, substance, not person. What does that mean? Well, substance, subterranean. When you use the term sub, you're talking about what is underneath. So what it's explaining to you in Hebrews 1 and 3 is that Jesus Christ is the expressed image of His substance of God. He is the expressed image of God. He is exactly identical with God. And that means, the substance means that what is underneath is the very nature of God Himself. So, Jesus Christ, when you looked at Him on the outside, you saw a man, but underneath that humanity, inside of Him, was the very substance or essence of God. Now, you have to understand that nature, 
nature, substance, essence of God, those are all mean the same thing. Okay? You cannot divide the essence or the substance or the nature of God. He is indivisible. Do you understand that? Now, even Trinitarians will say that. They will say as to His being, His nature, His substance, His essence. Trinitarians will say the same thing, that you cannot divide Him. But they will say that within that one substance of God, there were three co-equal, co-eternal persons in the Godhead in that substance. Okay? So you have one substance, you have an invisible spirit, and an invisible Father, an invisible Son in that one substance of God. Now, that creates so much confusion in me. How can you have one substance of God, essence or nature of God, and then within that one substance of God have three separate persons? It doesn't make any sense to me. To do that means that you would have to have an eternal Son and in, in an invisible form. And then in time, this invisible Son that dwelt in eternity, that invisible form would have to come and become visible in time and become the Son. Now, it, it just, just doesn't make any sense. Okay, So the problem is, when it comes to Trinitarian theology, is that they, they believe what we do when it comes to the essence of God. You cannot divide God. He's one God. The problem is, they put three co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent persons within that substance, and they say that basically they share the one substance of God. So that the three persons who dwelt eternally are sharing the one substance of God. The Father shares the one substance with the Son. The Son shares the one substance with the Father, Holy Ghost, so on and so forth. They just share the substance of God. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me. But that's what they say. Now, <clears throat> what we believe then is that there is one God. Say, one God. And as to His nature, <clears throat> He is Spirit. He is Spirit. So we talk about the nature of God. Let me give you four ba basic definitions of God in His nature and being. God is a Spirit, John 4.24. Right? So He's not called a person. You, God is a Spirit. That means not flesh and bones. <clears throat> He is invisible. And so He forbade visible images of Himself. Do you understand that? Because He's an invisible Spirit. He is not just a force. He is a Spirit. That means He has self-conscience and self-determination, self-will, intelligence, and feeling. He's a spiritual being rather than a physical being. Now that's the definition for God is a spirit. Is everybody with me here? Okay. Now, uh, the other nature of God in the Bible says God is light. 1 John 1 and 5. God is light. He doesn't have light, 
God is light as to His nature and substance. Now, what is that talking about? That talks about the glory of God. Okay? That's 1 John 1, 5. And then, uh, John, uh, love, God is love. 1 John four seventeen. He doesn't have love. He is love. God is love in His very being. That's His nature. Okay? Love is defined this way. His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His goodness towards His creatures. When God is the lover, you are the one that is loved. And so that's what that means. Uh, and then it says in Hebrews 12.29 that God is a consuming fire. He doesn't have fire. This is who He is in His, in his being, in His nature. In His essence. Everybody with me at this point? Okay. God is fire. He's holy in His judgment against sin. Now, that nature, the fire of God, His holiness, is what His throne is established on. The throne of God is established in His holiness. And His holiness if you can understand it, comes before His love and His mercy. Okay, the throne is established in holiness. But, but anyway, let me, let me get away from that. I'm, I don't want to, because I want to teach you the oneness, not that. So we talk about then His substance in chapter 1 and verse 3. The expressed image of His substance. It's talking about who God is. God is a spirit. Okay. God is light, God is love, and God is a consuming fire. That's who He is in His essence. Now, so this one God then, this invisible God, He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent, everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Those are attributes of God. You still with me? We have one God, but then we have attributes. Now, the best way I can explain this to you is you have the sun in the sky and you have one sun, but you have many beams. The radiance of the sun, the beams. So the essence of God, the nature of God, the substance of God is like the one sun. Okay? But then attributes are like the rays of the sun. The attributes of God are not parts of God. Like you don't have a part of God being holiness or, and then omnipotence and omniscience and, and so on and so forth. Omnipresence. You, these are not parts of God. The attributes of God. These are the way that God operates and functions as God. So you have the Son, God. He produces the attributes, the rays of the Son. But they are not parts of God. They are how God operates. Now, the next thing you need to understand is that God in His nature, in His substance, Hebrews 1.3, in His essence, is not a person. But it is a nature. Now what is a nature? Natura in the Latin, natura, N-A-T-U-R-A, natura in the Latin, um, 
has to do all of the some qualities and powers that make up a being. So when we talk about the nature of God, it's everything that makes God, God. His nature. All the qualities and powers. What is that nature? Spirit, light, love, and fire. That's what makes God, God. The nature. He's not a person, but He is essence, substance, right? Okay, now, when you talk about Jesus Christ... God come in the flesh, you have the subterranean deity, the substance, substance, inside of the human body of Jesus Christ. Subterranean. You understand that? Okay. So we have the nature of God in Him. And then we have another nature that God added to Himself called humanity. Are you with me? God added humanity to Himself. He didn't move into humanity. You understand? God made a human body and He dwells and dwells that humanity. Does that make sense? Okay. When you talk about Jesus Christ, then He had a dual nature. We do believe in a plurality when you talk about Jesus. Okay? But the plurality is not persons. Let me define for you person again. It is an individual with a conscience. Okay? I'll just leave, that's it, yeah. Okay. An individual with a conscience. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, there's not two people living in Him. You understand? You have the nature of the Son, humanity, and the nature of the Father, deity, in that one person. But here's what's important for you to understand. Is that they don't have separate consciousness. Because inside of the body of Jesus Christ, the Father, the substance of God was in Him. He's identical to God. You have the nature of a man. Everything that makes a man to be a man is in Jesus Christ at the same time. Body, soul, and spirit. So you have the Spirit of God, everything that makes God to be God, that nature. And you have the the man, Christ Jesus, everything that makes a man a man, body, soul, and spirit, united into one being. But they are so united and so bound together that you can't divide them even if they're in Jesus. Now you can make a distinction the Father, deity, and the Son, humanity, but you cannot divide the, the Spirit of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can't divide Him. He's indivisible. If you can divide the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, then you have a third, a third person. And it's totally different. He's a totally different creature than God or God in flesh. You understand? You got something totally different, something totally unique. So when Jesus comes, the substance of God, the nature of God, the essence of God is on the inside of that man. And that man has the human nature, body, soul, and spirit, everything that makes a man to be a man, and everything that makes God, God, is inside of Jesus Christ. So there is a plurality, but it is not a plurality of persons. It's a plurality of 
natures. And Hebrews 1 is talking about the one nature of deity. Let's look at it again. Who being the brightness of His glory, the speaking of God, and the expressed image of His substance, and upholding all things by the word of His power. Do you see that? So He is the visible manifestation of the substance of God. When you see Jesus Christ, you see God in the flesh. Indivisible. You can't divide Him. Distinguishable, yes. Father and Son. But indivisible, you cannot divide Him. That means this. He don't have two personalities. He doesn't have a split personality. One personality of the Father and one personality of the Son. Right? You have one person with one conscience. Divine conscience and human conscience. What does that mean? Not two different consciences, but an awareness that you're God, in this case, Jesus, and awareness that you're a man. Psychologically, you can't break Him down. It is impossible to break Him down psychologically. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Okay. So my point then tonight is that when the Bible talks about the essence or substance or nature of God, it doesn't call Him a person. He's a spirit. He's light. He's love. And He's fire. That's His very nature. And He has attributes. And I'll run through a few of them with you. These are qualities that belong to God. He's eternal. That means no beginning or ending. I'm going to go real fast. He's eternal. That means there was never a time. If you can imagine, if you can wrap your mind around this, there's some things you just can't wrap your mind around. God is eternal. That means there, there was never a time that He had a beginning. That's right. Amen. That's awesome. That He has always existed as God. Okay? He is the self-existent One. Nobody created Him. Now, you say, where did God come from? He's always been. He's self-existent. Nobody made Him. He's eternal. That means there was never a time that He didn't exist. But that's an eternality of God is an attribute. Now hold on. Jesus is eternal only in His deity. But not His humanity. Not His sonship. His sonship had a beginning in Bethlehem. He's the begotten Son of God. You with me? Okay. He is the self-existent one. He is the reason for His own existence. He's uncreated God. Living God. That's an attribute. He's immutable. That means He's unchanged, unchangeable. His methods with man may change, but He does not change as to His attributes. Does that make sense? Unchangeable. Immutable. He doesn't change. God doesn't change. His attributes don't change. What happens is, when it says God repented, of something in the Bible God repented, that means He changed His mind about something. His attribute didn't change. He didn't change. That means that the person changed. 
And when they lined up with his attribute, then it appeared like God changed, but it wasn't God, it was the person that changed. So that's, that's just an attribute, that's immutability. Okay? Omnipotent means all powerful. Nothing is impossible with God, yet under the control of his will. Not inconsistent with his character and being. Right? And some of you come up with these really strange things, you know. If, if God is, uh, if he can do anything, right? Well, he can't deny himself. There are some things that people say, well, God can do anything. No, there's some things he can't do. Because he can't deny himself. He can't do something that goes against his character or his nature. Right? So there are some things that God can't do. You talk about omnipotence, it's just, Nothing is impossible with God, yet under the control of His will, not inconsistent with His character and being. He's omniscient. means He's all-knowing at all time, within Himself, in the universe, and in all creativeness. It's unacquired knowledge. He never has to learn anything. He has all the facts, knowledge. He's perfect in interpretation of those facts. That's understanding. He's perfect in application of the facts. That's wisdom. Okay? So you talk about... Sometimes for me it's hard to define understanding. What does understanding mean? Well, let me go over that again. Knowledge. He has all the facts. Interpreting the facts is understanding. Perfect in interpretation of the facts. Understanding. Perfect in application of the facts is wisdom. He's infallible. He is incapable of error. So that's an attribute of God. His omniscience. Okay? Omnipresent. All present, not limited by space or time. Everywhere present at all times, outside of all space and inside all space. Space depends on Him for its existence. Even hell is maintained by His presence. So if you can imagine, we talked about going out and looking at the sky. In Romans chapter 1, we're teaching Romans. And the natural, the teaching of nature declares there's a God. It's called natural revelation. You walk outside and look up and see the stars. You know, there's a powerful God that made it and He was very wise when He made it. But you may not realize that He's on the outside of all of that and on the inside of it at the same time. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. Space literally indwells Him. That's amazing when you think about it. Again, there's something I can't wrap my mind around. Okay? Even hell is maintained by His presence. Hell would have stopped, would, would burn out. It would burn out. But because God is eternal, it won't burn out. He maintains its fires. He, can, he dwells in hell. There's no place you can escape. If you go to the heavens, He's there. David said, if, you go in, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. There's no place that you can get away from the presence of God. Even in hell. Now, hell can't burn God. Right? But, but what my point is that He actually maintains the fires of hell. That's why they're going to be eternal. Okay, now so anyway. 
His moral, moral attributes. He's holy. Purity. No sin. He cannot sin. Nor can He tolerate it. He is sinless. Uh, Habakkuk 1.3. These are moral attributes. Okay? Now, I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipresent. Amen? I'm not self-existent. I'm not immutable. But He has called us to be holy. So this is the moral attributes of God, but they are also what is known in theology as communicable attributes. That means He communicates the attributes to us. And He calls us to be holy. He can't call me to be omniscient, but He can call me to be holy. It is the, it is the fundamental attribute of God. His throne is established in the attribute of holiness. Amen. Even before the revelation of His grace and love, Psalm 47, verse 8, 89 and verse 14. Okay? But then he says, Be ye holy. Leviticus 9, 19 and 2. Hebrews 12, 14. Alright? Be ye holy. Now that's why you and I receive the Spirit of God. Because He wants a holy nation. And holiness has to do with where God's presence dwells. So that's why He gave you the Spirit. He gave you the Spirit so you would be holy. It's a communicable attribute of God. Uh, perfect righteousness. Righteousness and justice are synonymous. Righteousness is holiness in action against sin. I'll say it again. Righteousness is holiness in action against sin. Okay? That's amazing. Isaiah 11, 4 through 5, Revelation 16, 5 through 7, Psalm 89, 14, so on and so forth. Okay? Um, Ephesians 4 24, we are called to be righteous. A righteous has been given to us, and then a an action of righteous. Perfect love. Now, God is love. The perfection of affections, not merely emotion, but can act out of His will to give Himself to His creation. The lover is God, the love, and then you have the love, and that's all expressed in redemption. Holiness is seen on the cross when He judges sin, and His love is seen on the cross when He makes salvation available. Okay? So anyway, I'm not going to go through all of them. but So you get the point. So you have God and you have the attributes of God. Who God is in His very nature and being. And then the attributes of God is the way God functions, the way He operates. The sun is the essence and the radiance or the rays attributes that are coming forth. Do you understand that? Now, i got a question for you. Is Jesus divine or is He deity?
Which one is he? Is he divine? How many of y'all would say he's divine? Okay, how many of y'all would say he's deity? He's both. He's both. All right? Let me give you some verses we'll cover. In Acts 17, let's go there. Acts 17.29, this term Godhead is used three times by Paul. 17.29 For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead, say Godhead, Godhead. is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's devices. Okay. That word is to be to have the attributes of God. You with me? The Greek word is T H E I O S, theos. That's divinity. When you talk about divinity, you're talking about having the attributes of God. Now the Bible tells us that we have received the divine nature. When you and I receive the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, we receive the divine nature, but that doesn't make you God. See, here's the difference. When you talk about Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, it wasn't that it's a man filled with the Spirit of God. That's what you and I are. We are human beings filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus was more than a man filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God at the same time. You and I can't say the same thing. So the Bible talks about when you and I receive the Holy Ghost, we receive the divine nature of God. That means we're not God. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have the attributes of God in us. But we're not, say with me, God. Okay? So in Acts 17, 29, Paul used the term Godhead. That has to do with the attributes of God, divinity. Colossians 2, let's go there. Two and nine. For in him dwelleth all the fullness, said with me, of the what? Godhead. Second time Paul uses the term Godhead. This word is different. This word is not spelt T H E I O S. Are you with me? The Ios. It's not, it's not spelt that way. Okay, this particular word, deity, theos, the actual Greek word, T-H-E-O-T-A-S-E, theotese, literally means absolutely God full deity as God, the source. So divinity is the attributes of God. But here the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That word is not for den- that's not the word 
Divinity, that's the word deity. That means He's absolutely God. He doesn't just have the attributes of God. He is God. The very substance of God, the very nature of God is in Jesus Christ. Okay? Alright. Amazing. Now let's look at another verse. Romans 1, 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Do you see that? Okay. Verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and what? Godhead. Third time Paul uses that term. Now this time... This is the attributes of God. Uh, the deity, theotes, say, this one is in the Greek, the, theotes. Now, it's got that I in it. But anyway, this has to do with the attributes of God. Everybody with me? So what we, the Bible is clearly declaring you is this. Okay, now we have this doctrine today that is taught that Jesus was a man that was filled with the Spirit of God. Well, I could say that about you. That you are a people filled with the Spirit of God. But that doesn't make you God. Okay? Or does it say He was just a man anointed by God? Or a man filled with the Spirit of God? But the Bible doesn't say that He's just divine. The Bible says that He is that one and the same God. Okay? He's not just divine having attributes of God or power, He is God Himself in His very essence, substance, or nature. And that's what that verse is talking about in Hebrews chapter 1. Okay, so, hallelujah. So the Bible's very clear. It does not ever call God as a spirit, a person. It calls God a person when He comes in the form of a man. Not before that. There's only one person in the Godhead. So when you see Jesus, you see not two persons, you see one person with the Spirit of God in Him. Okay, 100% God, 100% man at the same time. Okay, say praise the Lord. Y'all with me? Okay. Now let's go over and deal with one, the term one. But before I do that, I want to go over the definition with you of Trinity. This is a non-biblical term, Trinity. First thing we talked about, person. God doesn't call, uh, God is not called a person in the Bible before His incarnation. Okay? So to say you got three separate persons in the Godhead, you're already off the Bible. You're not in the Bible. Next thing is, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Now, it's a little tricky, you know. Somebody said, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. We believe in the rapture. Yes, I believe in the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture. Okay? You might say it is in the Latin version. Raptusio. So, it gets a little technical. But I will say this. 
the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's a non-biblical term. So when you start using the term Trinity, then you've got to come up with these definitions as what, what do you mean by Trinity? And that's changed over a period of time. And it depends on who you talk to, it won't be the same. Now, where did the term Trinity come from? Did it come from the Bible? Is the word Trinity in the Bible? No. So I challenge you, go get your concordance out and look up in your concordance, Strong's concordance or Young's analytical concordance and look up the word Trinity and see if it's in there. It's not in there. Now, if there is a doctrine in the Bible and the word's not in there, but the doctrines in the Bible, I don't have a problem with terms that are outside of the Bible as long as the Bible supports what that term is. But the term Trinity is not in the Bible and the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible. So where it came from, the first time that it was used, the Greek, Greek form, uh, triaz, T-R-I-A-S, triaz, was first used by a man by the name of Theophilus of Antioch in A.D. 181. And then the Latin term trinitis, T-R-I-N-I-T-A-S, trinitis was used by Tertullian in A.D. 220. And then the term triad was used by a man by the name of Plantinus, P-L-O-N-T-I-N-U-S, Plantinus, in 270. Okay? So that term, again, historically, it's not in the Bible. It wasn't even used until the first time anything similar to it in, until 181. Now, you can check that out historically. You can go and study history. You don't, and this is history. It's not in the Bible. I'm not teaching the Bible. I'm giving you history here. And all you have to do is go look it up yourself. Look up the history of the word Trinity. And you can find out where it originated. You'll probably have to look us, use some theology books to do it. Okay? Now, the Trinity in Christian theology means three eternal distinctions in one divine essence or substance known as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And they say these three, and these are three persons. Tritheism is to deny the unity of the essence of God, that the essence of God is not one, and holds to three distinct gods. The only unity it recognizes is unity of purpose and endeavor. Now we're fixing to define oneness or one in a moment. Now Sabellianism, sometimes we are called because we believe in the oneness of God and not three separate persons in the Godhead. We're called followers of Sibelius. But I don't like I don't let people label me. I don't let them do that to me. And the reason I don't is because we don't know everything that Sibelius taught. Okay? And just like we talked about last Wednesday night about modalism. You know, well, you're a modalist. I don't let people label me modalist unless they got the definition of modalism that is biblically correct. I need to know what you mean by modalism because Trinitarians define modalism in a different way. So, again, if you want to call us followers of Sibelius, we don't accept that because we do not know what the man believed totally. Now, and I know this gets heavy and whatever, but I gotta do my job. Sabellianism held to a trinity, listen, of revelation, but not of natures. 
Are you with me? So he denied three separate persons in the Godhead. But he said that he believed in a trinity of revelation, but not of natures. Father in creation, Son in redemption, Holy Ghost in regeneration. I can gather that. I can, I can follow that. Yes, I do believe that God was the Father in creation, the originator. Son in redemption. God come in the form of man to redeem us. And the Holy Ghost indwelling the believer. I, I believe that. I accept that. But if that if he said that God, there was never another nature that God took on, and it was only a revelation of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, then I've got a problem with that. Because it's more than three revelations of God, because Jesus was a man in his nature, and he was God in his nature. Not just a revelation, but Literally, God and man at the same time. Two natures. Does that make sense? Okay. So again, I don't let people, I really don't let people label me. Okay. Now, let's go over some terms in the Bible that deal with the, how many gods are there? Gave you the, Background of those terms, Trinity. Write down in your notes, God is one. Okay, one God. One God. Monotheism. One God. Now, Trinitarians will say, yeah, we believe in one God, one essence of God, but believe in three separate persons in the Godhead. And when it comes to terms like Echad, in the Hebrew, or Yahid in the Hebrew, they really try to put those terms in a, in a, in a hole. Okay, and I'll explain what I'm talking about. Echad is used 900 times. Over 900 times, Echad. Okay, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Echad. Echad. One Lord. Over 900 times that term is used. Now, Trinitarian theology says, and again, I'm not putting myself in a mode of attacking tonight. I'm not going to make fun and mock them. Okay? But I'm going to say this, that they are not honest. Or they have not studied it. They just say what other Trinitarian theologians say. What do they say? They say that Echad, here always with the Lord our God is one, means unity. Unity. Unity of purpose. Unity of mind. That it doesn't mean numerical oneness. That is incorrect. And I'll get to that in just a moment. They will, all, they will make another statement. They will say, if it's numerical oneness, the term should be Yahid. That means strict numerical oneness. That is incorrect. Because Yahid is used as numerical oneness, but it's also used as unity oneness. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, let me back up. So they say, Echad means unity. 
not in strict numerical, like God is one numerically. He's in unity. A unified. Something unified. Echad. Okay, Echad, so you'll know. Echad, yes, at times does speak of unity. And Echad, but here's where they're wrong. Echad also speaks of numerical oneness. Here always with the Lord our God is one Lord, yes. He's one in unity of purpose, but He's also one numerically. Okay? That means absolute oneness. Now I'm going to start in the Old Testament. We're going to do deductive. We're going to start with the big. We're going to funnel down to the specific in the New Testament. Okay? When you talk about God, is He one? Is He two? Is He three? Is He four? Is He five? What does the Bible say? Okay? Well, first of all, you have to understand that for polytheism or pantheism to be refuted by the oneness of God, that means He can't be just a unity of one. Because if that were the case, then you could put 50 gods together, different gods, not numerical oneness, but just put them all together, still have 50 separate gods, and they unify in mind and purpose. So if God is just a God of oneness, there is no thing that combats the doctrine of many gods. If you're saying that God is just one in unity, you could say that about many gods. But God wants you to know by His Word that He's the only God and that He's the only one God. Are you all with me here to this point? Okay, so let's look at it very quickly. We're going to start with the deductive. From the original to the large, I mean, the general, the large, we're going to go down to the specific in the New Testament and see what the Bible says. Okay, Old Testament, one God. Monotheism, not polytheistic. Okay. Deuteronomy 4, 35, 39. Psalm 86, verse 10. The one you're more familiar with. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Look up those terms. Look up those words. Those scriptures, okay? The word echad is used there. And it literally means God alone. God alone. It is true that that word echad is used in the sense of unity, but it is also used in the sense of strict numerical oneness. The Hebrew word yachid, Y-A-C-H-E-A-D. Yachid or yachid. Trinitarians say that's the word that should be used for numerical oneness. But in Deuteronomy 33, 4-5, Yahid is used to speak of union. So once again, what they say is misleading. They say Echad can only mean unity of oneness, and they say Yahid can only be, mean uh, numerical oneness, but Echad can mean numerical oneness, and it does, and unity, and Yahid can also mean unity and numerical oneness. So you can't play that. You can't say the term isn't right. You have to go by the Bible, okay? So, let's look at it. I'm 
I'm going to go over here and I'm going to get into the New Testament. We're going to go from... Okay. Now I'm having to turn way over here because I'm dealing with two things. I'm dealing with the nature of God and I'm dealing with Christology, Jesus. Okay? All right. Echad in the Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6.4. This is numerical oneness. It's used over 900 times. This is Old Testament, okay? Numerical singular one. Okay? In the New Testament, then when you come and it talks about the nature of God, let's go to Mark 12, 29. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, Echad, Numerical oneness. Let's go. New Testament. We're going to funnel down to see if we come with come up with the same conclusion by word study. Mark twelve twenty nine. Now start at verse 28. Are you there? Okay. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now he's quoting the Shema. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Obviously, if you know the Bible, you know Echad is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament one. But what about the New Testament? Because the New Testament wasn't translated from the Hebrew. It was translated from the Greek. So if we're going to do a word study in the Old Testament on Echad and try to determine if it means numerical oneness, then we come to the New Testament when those scriptures are quoted. Will the Greek words that are used there, are they going to speak of unity? Like a man and a woman in marriage is one? One in union? Or the words in the New Testament in the Greek, are they also going to speak of numerical oneness? Okay? All you have to do is get a concordance. And I printed all this out off of my computer. I mean, I, actually, I don't have them with me tonight, but I actually have the definitions of what I'm going to give you. Okay? Um, print it out. Now, in Mark 12, 29, where it says, he's quoting the Shema, Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Lord. Echad in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it's hase. Hase. Now it's said, it's said like that, hase. H-A-Y-C-E. But it's spelled H-E-I-S. Is it numerical oneness or is it unity of oneness? Trinitarians would say unity of oneness, not numerical oneness. Which one is it? The Greek word, according to Strong's, number 1520. Okay? 
means numerical oneness. So we're moving from the the large to the small. We're moving from the general to the specific. It's called deductive. And if you come up with the same answer from the general to the specific, you have a solid conclusion. Okay? Now, if I got a contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament as far as interpretation of words, I got a problem. I need to figure out what's going on. But the New Testament is actually helping me define Echad, Deuteronomy 6 4, with this Greek word heis, which clearly is defined strong by Strong's as numerical oneness. On my computer, Walter Bowers lexicon, it's called BDAG. Uh, he says that word haste literally means one alone. A single person or thing, numerically. Uh, Spiro Zodiates, some of y'all may have his dictionaries. Y'all talk to me about dictionaries, what I encourage y'all to get. I get the volume. It's got the Bible, New Testament, one volume. And then it's got a totally separate volume. And over every word, it gives you a Strong's number. Okay? And you can go and you can study, first of all, by looking at the Bible and the numbers over the words. And then you take this other book that Spiro Zodiates has, and he explains what that number is on that word in that Bible, what it means. Spiral Zodiates is numbered according to Strong's, and his he says fourteen twenty means numerically one. Numerically one. Okay. So when the scholars, word scholars, lexicons, dictionaries, when they define these words, this word here. And Jesus answered, the first of all commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They define it as numerical oneness. Okay? That's amazing to me. Not just unity or purpose, but oneness. Now, John 10.30, let's go there. So not only is the word Trinity not used in the Bible, and not only as the Trinitarians say that it, oneness speaks of unity, the Bible's clear it speaks of numerical oneness. Not to discount unity. John 10.30, y'all are very familiar with this. Jesus said this, I and my Father are how many? They're one. I and my Father are one. Now, what is the word that is used there? What does it mean? Does it mean oneness like a man and wife in union? A purpose in mind? Or is it numerical oneness? Well, the Greek word there is H-E-N. Hen, hen. And uh, it literally means one thing. One and the same. So it's numerical. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, He's saying, I am one and the same. I am not different. He's the expressed image of His substance. He is identical. He's not different. Okay? In His deity. 
And so we see it here in John 10, 30. I, my Father, are one. means one and the same. Numerical oneness. Now, there is a term that is used, and it's singular feminine. It's Mia, M-I-A. And this one, when it talks about oneness, speaks of marriage. But that term, Mia, is completely irrelevant when it comes to the doctrine of the oneness. Isn't that interesting? That God made that term that speaks of oneness between a man and a wife. It's not even used concerning, it doesn't apply to the doctrine of God. Although I do believe, I do understand, now that's the Greek word, I do believe that echad and even hase has a unity aspect to it as well. As well as numerical oneness. But I'm showing you by lexicons and, and by word studies going from the general to the specific in a deductive method that you come up with the same conclusion in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is not just one in unity like three separate persons that are in unity together in purpose and mind. One, one numerically. God. And because He is one numerically, here always the Lord of God is one Lord, and Jesus quotes it Himself. He declares what He believes. Jesus was God come in the flesh, but when He preached, He preached the doctrine of monotheism. That's what Jesus believed in. Strict monotheism. John 14, let's go there. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us or satisfy us. And Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou, show us the Father? You know, Philip's saying, Where's where's the location of God? Where's help us locate his deity? And Jesus says, When you've seen me. You've seen the Father. Amen. Amen. Why? Because He's God manifest in the flesh. Now, if it's oneness in the sense of unity of a husband and wife, and you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again, it's a good point. When you've seen me, you haven't seen my wife. And when you've seen my wife, you haven't seen me. But we are one flesh. So Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And when Philip said, show us the Father and it will satisfy us. And Jesus says, have I been so long time been, you know, uh, been so long time with you, Philip? And knowest not thou the Father? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's absolute, that's strict numerical oneness. Not just unity of purpose. That's the location of deity. Go to John 15. Fifteen twenty four. He that loveth me, that's not it. Okay, fifteen. Sorry.
It's John 14, excuse me. And then we'll go to 1524. John 14, look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now Jesus has already told the disciples, He said, When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now He says something very interesting. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we, plural, plural, will come unto Him and make our abode with Him. The Bible says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay, go to Ephesians 4. Let's look at it. Keep your place in John 14. Ephesians 4. Let's start with verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord. How many? One. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So look at verse 4 again. There is one body and one spirit. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one God. But yet Jesus says making a promise to those who keep His commandments, that believe in Him and keep His commandments, He says, we will come and make our abode. How's it termed? With them? What's the word used? We will come unto Him and make our abode with Him. If there's only one Spirit, then when you and I receive the Holy Ghost, who's the wheat? It says the Father, Jesus says the Father and I will come and, and, and make our abode with them. How's He coming? Is, he, is it two spirits living inside of you? Is there two spirits living inside of me? It's a plural term, isn't it? Just because you have a plural term doesn't mean you have two separate persons or two separate spirits. So I don't have one spirit of the Father in me and one spirit of the Son in me. Not two separate. When Jesus said, we will come and make our abode, right, with Him, the word we is this. You have what? In Jesus. You have a dual nature. You have deity and humanity. There are aspects of Jesus in His deity that you receive when you receive His Spirit. The power of God. But there's an aspect of Jesus in His humanity that is given to you as well. And that's when He died on the cross as a man to reconcile us, to redeem us. And so the term when we will come and make our abode means everything that Jesus is in His deity and everything that He is in His humanity, we receive when we receive the Spirit of God. You're not getting two spirits. You're getting the different qualities that the Spirit of God brings, either of God or of what Jesus provided for you when God became a man. 
Amen? I mean, if you've got the human Jesus walking around inside of you, you got to, I mean, you know, that's just ridiculous. We don't have two spirits. We've got one spirit. One spirit. There's one spirit. We've got the Holy Ghost. But everything that Jesus is in His deity and everything He is in His humanity, I received when I received the Spirit of God. Okay? Now go to 15 and 24. How many is there one? There's just one, right? Okay, one God. We've located deity. It's in Jesus Christ. But not at the expense of His humanity. He is a man as well. Okay. 15.24 If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not sinned. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father. Well, he said the works that I did, that He did. He said, but they have seen. What? They, they have seen and hated both me and my Father. That means He's one and the same. Okay? You've located it. You've located it. The same is the same one person. When you talk about Jesus. So it is a numerical oneness as well as unity. I have no problem with unity. But to say it's only unity and not numerical oneness, you have nothing to defeat the doctrine of many gods that's held by the pagans. If you do not believe in the absolute oneness of God, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, that Jesus was none less than God, He was God and man at the same time, when you preach Him, you have to preach Him absolutely one God. You have to preach Him as God. You can't preach Him as being a part of another. You can't just say He's in unity, which He is, but you can't just say unity. He's in unity in His humanity, in unity with the Spirit that's in Him, in will and purpose, yes. But He's absolutely one in numerical oneness. I'm going to say it again. You get five or six different pagan gods together, they can be one in unity of purpose. But the Bible, when it teaches the oneness of God, teaches it numerically as well so they can refute the doctrine of many gods. There's power in that. If you believe in one God, James says, you do well. The devils believe and tremble. Even the devil, even the devil agrees with that. There's one God. Okay? I think it's Robert Bear that made that statement. There's one, one thing I and the devil agree on. And that there's a one God. The devil doesn't believe in three gods. Robert Bear, I, I don't even know if Robert Bear's still alive. He was a scriptorian. You know. Man, he could get up there. He didn't have to take his Bible to the pulpit. He'd just get up there and just quote it verbatim. A scriptorian. And uh, that's what he said. He said, there's one thing that the devil and I believe in, agree on, and that is that God is one. Okay? So praise the Lord. So we move from the Old Testament, the general, to the New Testament specific. And we're trying to determine by words. Echad, yachid, okay, heis, hen, so on, mia. We have to, we have to go to the lexicons. We have to define them to see, is it just unity or is it numerical? And without exception, the greatest people who write lexicons and dictionaries agree, okay, that it's numerical oneness. Now, let's go to John chapter one. I want to cover another 
statement that uh, Trinitarian theology says this can be very challenging. John 1 1, please turn there. This has to do with the word with. Okay. Okay, John 1 1. Are you there? Let's look at it. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. Right? So what was with God in the beginning? The Word. Now look at verse 14. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So we know that the Word is God, but the Bible says the Word was with God. Now, here's what I want you to see. Leave us A.T. Robertson. Grammar of the New Testament. Yes, A.T. Robertson suggested. He suggested that the word with means face to face. Now, you will hear, you will hear, and I'm going to take the Word of God and I'm going to prove to you that that's not correct. Okay? So... It makes it sound like in the beginning was the word, the, the word, and the word was face to face with God, right? So, like they had a, they were face to face, like the Son and the Father were face to face. They were looking at each other, and then the Son could see the Father, and the Father could see the Son. Okay. First of all, let me ask you a question: If God is a spirit, how could the Son? See his face. If God is eternal spirit and he's everywhere, where's his face? So, A.T. Robertson, I'm approved by the word of God, A.T. Robertson is wrong when he says that this word means face to face, like the Father and the Son are looking at each other. All right, now you're probably not ever going to come across this, you know, you're, 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 People that go to Trinitarian churches are probably not going to walk up and say, hey, you know what? God's Word says there's a face-to-face encounter with God in eternity between the Father and the Son. And it's in John 1 and 1. You go, oh, really? Wow, really? Does it say that? You're probably never going to have this. But just in case it you know, comes to you, I'm giving you some things that have challenged me through the years. That word pros, P-R-O-S, pros, with, does it, can it mean face-to-face or not? All right, let's look in the Word of God. First John, same writer as John 1.1. 1, 1. Okay, John 1.1. 1, 1. First John uh, chapter 1.
Okay. Okay, verse 1, chapter 1 through 4. John is writing the same. He's the same one who wrote, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Same John. Okay? He's going to use the term with again. Let's look at it. Does it mean face to face? That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Now, the Trinitarians say that there was a face-to-face that the invisible Spirit of God had a face. And He's looking at, supposed to be, the invisible son who had a face. And, and so now John says, we have seen with our eyes. Did they see that word with? Did they see an invisible spirit? No. They saw Jesus, God in flesh. I didn't see an invisible spirit. Okay, let's keep reading. For the life was manifested. The life was manifested. We have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Now, if you're going to interpret in the beginning the Word was with God and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God as face to face, are you now telling me that we see here that eternal life which was with the Father, that eternal life has a face? It says eternal life was with the Father. And eternal life don't have a face. So you re- man, he really stretching to try to make that word with cross face. Now, what does it mean? I'll, I'll tell you what it really means. It means to pertain to. Or it means source or origin. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word pertained to God. And the Word was God. And the same. Amen? You can't separate a man's Word from himself. I'm speaking right now. Words are coming out of me. Can you separate my word from myself? Can you take my word I'm speaking right now and make it another person to stand it beside me? No. You can't separate a man's word from himself. My words are with me. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. You can't separate his word from himself. He is his word. That word logos means the thought, the plan, the blueprint of God. And that thought and that plan and that blueprint of God, Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Word that was with God, His thought, His blueprint, His plan, which was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. You can't separate my thoughts from me. My thoughts are me. You can't separate my words from me. My thoughts, 
My words are me. They are with me. Not a separate person. I'm going to say it again. You can't take my words and make them into another person. That's where the Greek paganism, the Greek philosophy came in. They made the word logos a separate person from God. But the Bible says the logos was God. So the doctrine of the Trinity, three separate persons, does have, even though the Trinities would deny this, a uh, Greek philosophy background in their definition of the term logos. Say amen. All right? Say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It didn't pertain to, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't face to face. It pertained to God, because He is God. 1 John 5 20. Let's go there. We know, and we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we, we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true even in His Son Jesus Christ. Listen, who is the true God? In His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John says that Jesus Christ is the true God. Okay? So it's very, very clear by the Word of God. If God is an invisible spirit, how could the Son, how could a pre existent Son see His face? It's just not true. 1 Corinthians 4. In fact, let me show you we're going to see the glory of God in. What face? When did He put on a face? 1 Corinthians 4. I'm not going to keep you much longer. But these are some uh, theology that uh, Trinitarian doctrine holds that I wanted to cover tonight. You can read it for yourself. You're already there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. The only face you're ever going to see in eternity. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself to pause for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of... Okay. Amen. I am not reading the right verse. Sorry. Let me go to 2 Corinthians 4. Sorry. Yeah, that's it. Okay, verse, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. 
in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine... Who is He? He's the image of God. Should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The only face of God that you're ever going to see is the face of Jesus. Eternal Spirit doesn't have a face. So it is not biblical to say that it was a face-to-face encounter in eternity with some invisible form of the Son, invisible form of the Father, invisible form of the Holy Ghost. I mean, it, it really is difficult to establish you can't do it. What they say. Okay? Amen. Okay, that's as far as I want to go tonight. I do want to address one thing. Hypostasis, the substance of God we've already covered, should not be interpreted uh, or translated as person. Another term, Nicene Creed, homoousius, H-O-M-O-O-O-U-S-I-O-S, homoousius. In the Nicene Creed, they declared the Son is of the same substance with the Father. Same substance with the Father. But when you go into further detail... See where it is. Just give me just a minute. I have to go back over here and look at what the uh, Trinitarian Council of Nicaea, what they determined. over here on the nature of God. Okay. Homoousius of the same substance. Okay. The Council of Nicaea 325 A.D. Establish the eternal, pre-existent Godhead of Christ. It says He was begotten before worlds. Before all worlds, it says. So then the Nicene Creed then, declaring that they are of one substance, stated that they believed that the Son was eternal, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, with the Father, okay? Instead of being begotten. That is incorrect. Homoousius, same substance, yes, only in the sense that He is God, come in the flesh. The substance is His deity, 
come in the flesh, but not a separate person. It gets crazy. They say that there's one substance of God, but three separate persons in subsistence. Now, what in the world that means, I don't know. They speak of an individual existence or they say the subsistence of the one essence. So you have the one essence of God, but these three separate persons are in subsistence to that one essence. Now, come on, man. You know, I just... I'm Tonight, I am really just really wading through all of this stuff because to try to explain you know, what they believe and then counteract that with the Word of God is a challenge because it's... I don't even totally understand what they're talking about. And, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, I think sometimes they don't, and, and I've studied this and I've heard, heard them teach, they don't even understand either. Okay? But what are they doing? They are honestly have tried through the years, way back, you know, to the early church when these heresies started popping their heads up. And, and I'm not going to get into all the false doctrines that have come. I've got it in my notes. All the false doctrines concerning Jesus Christ as to who He was. But when these false doctrines popped their head up, what men did was they tried to counteract that. Okay? And so they would come up with non-biblical terms and, and theories about the nature of God trying to refute those false concepts. But in doing that, they created more problems. Okay? And it, it is really, really, really a challenge. I love to just stick with the Word of God and, and let the Word of God say uh, what the nature of God is. Okay? There's an, a creed called the Athanasian Creed. 500 A.D. was when it was... Athanasius lived back in 325. He refuted Arianism in 325 A.D., which we talked about Arianism last week, which talked Arius came and said that, there, that God created Jesus as a, a demigod, half God, half man, you know, a lesser God than, him, than himself to create the worlds. And Arius was completely wrong. And so Athanasius went into debate against him, so on and so forth, in 325 A.D. But there was a creed that uh, came out. It's called the Athanasian Creed, 500 A.D. The belief in, it says, the belief in the Catholic faith in the Trinity is indispensable, an indispensable condition of salvation. Those who reject it will be lost forever. Just so, long, just so you know how strongly they believe it. Okay? Michael Cervantes in church history, the days of Luther, Martin Luther, the days of the Reformation, Martin Luther. John Wesley in those days. Michael Cervantes. Now you had you, you would be amazed, okay? If you if you read about Michael Cervantes and you read the true history of Michael Cervantes. And then you listen to Trinitarian teachers on who Michael Cervantes is. They, they make him out to be the biggest heretic that walked the planet. Michael Cervantes believed in the oneness of God, the absolute oneness of God. 
And they took Michael Cervantes and Martin Luther gave his voice of consent to the execution of Michael Cervantes. They burned that man at the stake because he believed in the oneness of God. I don't know everything that Michael Cervantes believed, but as far as what I do know about him, he was your brother. And the church council, Trinitarian church council, burned him at the stake for believing what you and I believe. Thankfully today, you know, church history sort of, churches evolved and the way they deal with, with things have changed. But in those days, the Reformation period in those days, they take you and burn you at the stake if you didn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Athanasia, that Creed 500, if you didn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, they said you were going to hell. That's what they believed. It's changed over time. They don't come yet and take us out and burn us on the stake. Amen. Okay, say praise the Lord. So then what the Word of God teaches us is that there is one God. One God. He is a spirit. That one God has attributes. Okay. Radiates. The radiance of God. His attributes are not parts of God, but they are the way the Spirit of God operates and functions. And this one God, eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, so on and so forth, came in the form of a man. The Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary. Does Jesus have two fathers? The Holy Ghost is nothing more than the, the Father, the Spirit of the Father in action. When you turn, use the term Holy Ghost, it's the same one Spirit of the Father in action. If the Holy Ghost is a separate person from the Father, Jesus has two daddies. Because the Bible says the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary and she was with child. Okay, you with me? That holy thing that was formed in her is the Son of God. He was God and man at the same time. Not from birth, but from conception. 100% God, 100% man. Not half God, half man. Not like some kind of, you know, Greek mythology. 100% God, 100% man at the same time. And when God added to Himself another nature called humanity, he was born as a man he hungered, as a man he thirst. As God, he fed the multitudes. He grew. He walked on the earth. He was the God-man. When you saw Jesus, you saw not all of God, but the quality of God was in Him. He was the Godhead embodied, the headquarters of God was embodied in Jesus Christ. And there's only one person in the Godhead. Jesus is not in the Godhead. The Godhead is in Jesus. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. Colossians 2. I will say it again. Jesus is not in the Godhead. All the fullness of the Godhead is in Him. 
He is the headquarters of God's Spirit. Hallelujah. None less than God, but also a man. Now we can't, for the sake of focusing on His deity, neglect His humanity because that's Gnosticism. Gnosticism says that Jesus wasn't a man. I mean, He wasn't God. He wasn't God. He was only a man. Okay? So that's the focus. That focuses on His humanity. Let me get the one that focuses and says that it's not his, He's not God. All the doctrines, all the, the false doctrines concerning Jesus, who He is, they're not new. The early church dealt with them. They're dealt with in the Scripture. Okay. The Ebonites deny His deity. The Gnostics deny His humanity. So I had it right. Okay. The Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus was a man. They thought he, they said he was a ghost. So the Ebionites believed in his deity. The Gnostics denied his humanity. The Arians said he was a created being. Paulinarians denied his complete human nature. Nestorians denied the union of the two natures in Christ. Only a manifestation of God, they say. No, I'm sorry. Only a man filled with God, they say. Eutychians deny the dual nature, so they have a third or a hybrid nature of the two. Monophysites deny the dual nature. Okay, so anyway, yes, Gnosticism denied the humanity. And these others deny the deity. So anyway, we don't want to focus just on the deity of Jesus and deny His humanity because then you are a Gnostic. But you, what you have is a mystery. First Timothy 3, let's go there. You have a mystery. Is Jesus in the Godhead? Or is the Godhead in Jesus? Okay, before we go to 1 Timothy, let's go to Colossians 2. So you'll have the answer to that. The headquarters of God. Colossians 2. Verse 9. For in Him, that's in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So you only have one body, you only have one person. And all the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, dwells in that one body, that one person. So He's not in the Godhead as a separate person. All the Godhead is in Him. It's so simple. It's so simple for you to stay with the Bible. So really, I don't even know why I'm dealing with Trinitarian theology, to be honest with you. But it's out there. So we seek to address what is important to address. First Timothy 3, let's go there. 
Verse Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of what? The Trinity. It's not there, is it? It's not there. You know, and I, I do that because some people say, well, it's a mystery, you know. The Trinity is a mystery. Yeah, you're right. Some, yeah. And without controversy, great is the mystery of what? Godliness. But then he explains it. <laughs> it's a mystery. But what is it? He said, I can tell you this much. I can't, I can't break it all down for you, you know. You can't psychologically explain everything. But he said, I can tell you this. He knows there's one God and there's a distinction in God. In natures. What does it say? Without controversy, great is the mystery of Godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Who was? God. If you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, they're a co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent Son that dwelt with the Father in eternity, in visible form, and then came in the form of a man. If that's what, if would the Scripture not say, "Great is the mystery of Godliness, the Son of God was manifest in the flesh." If, as in Trinitarian theology, it teaches that at some point the invisible Son, who was in the essence of God, came in the form of a man, it says God Himself was manifested in the flesh. Great is the mystery of Godliness. Justified in the Spirit. Right? Justified in the Spirit. What did, what did the eternal presence of God say when Jesus was baptized in water? The human Jesus coming up out of the water? Well, I wish I had time to look at that one. That's powerful. But comes up out of the water. And what is that? Because God is omnipresent. He's not every I mean he's everywhere present. When Jesus, when God came in the form of a man, he didn't God didn't give up any of his attributes. Okay? So in the omnipresence, the Spirit of God says, This is my beloved Son with whom. Uh-uh. In whom, in whom I am well pleased, justified in the Spirit. Seen of angels, they constantly minister to him. Right? Preached unto the Gentiles. Apostles preached him unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. That's the mystery of godliness. God manifests in the flesh. Okay. Praise the Lord. I love all of you. Thank you for your time tonight. Please stand.
if you want a uh, if you want a version that doesn't have all the Trinitarian uh, things that we've tried to deal with, okay, terminology. I mean, you're still going to have some, but not as much. There is a series that I taught on biblical doctrines, okay, uh, theology, biblical doctrines, and that is available on disc. And I will, I will tell you, if you get that series, you're not just talking about. Christology, who Jesus is. You're not just talking about the nature of God, the deity. You're talking about who, what, who man is. You're talking about sin. You're talking about the devil. You're talking about the occult. You're talking about so many doctrines that are found. Okay, Amen. The Bible addresses these various things in that series. If you'll get that series and listen to it, much of what I said, okay, it'll go systematic. And if you'll get it and you'll listen to them and study and take notes, okay, you'll have a knowledge of the Word of God. Now, you don't have to buy, you don't, you don't even have to buy anything. You don't have to buy that series or anything that we teach from the Bible. It's all free. All you got to do is order it. Okay. You don't have to go, you know, get the series from Genesis to Revelation. You can get this series on the major doctrines of the Bible. And when you get through listening to them, you're going to know something about the Word of God. And it's free. We've taught it to you before. Okay? We make it available to you if you just take the time to study it. Now, don't get them, don't order them and use them as a you know, pill. You can't sleep, so you're okay, get one of Pastor Carter's CDs. You know, don't use it as a sleeping pill. And, you know, don't order it and throw it in the closet and don't listen. If you listen to it, you can have it for free. Brother Dice used to say this though. If you if you do something for free, then people won't value it. So he used to teach a Bible class and I got to go to one of them on the book of Acts. And man, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to hear him teach. And he stood up and he said, This class is not going to mean much to most of you because you didn't pay for it. So but I made you pay for it when you before you came in, it it meant something, it had been valuable to you. That wasn't me, man. I valued it. Maybe I ought to charge you something so you'd value it. But we're not going to. We're not going to. It's free. But all I ask is if you order it and you get it, you're going to take somebody's time to duplicate them on all of that stuff. Please take the time and listen to them and study them and learn the Word of God. Amen? It'll be a blessing to you. So we sort of gave you a little bit of another. We've added some things to it. But uh, if you get that series, it'll bless your life. Okay? Everybody say free. 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 Not many things in life are free. That's free. Okay, I love all of you. God, in the mighty name of Jesus, we just pray that you bless in each and every individual that is here tonight. Watch over their families. Protect them. Send your angels. I plead your blood, Father God, over their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.